Hello and welcome to Data is Plural, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Singervine. This episode's guest is Julia Black, coordinator of the International Organization for Migration's Missing Migrants Project, featured in the January 15th, 2020 edition of the Data is Plural newsletter. Without further ado, here we go. My name is Julia Black. I work on IOM's Missing Migrants Project, and I'm the coordinator of that project. What is the Missing Migrants Project? So the Missing Migrants Project is actually approaching its 10-year anniversary. It was founded in response to the Lampedusa shipwrecks in October 2013, which claimed the lives of, of several hundred migrants. And since then, it's grown to be a project which centers around documenting these deaths during migration worldwide, but increasingly goes beyond that. So we have a collection of good practices. We have more than 100 analytical reports on our data, on thematic issues linked to missing migrants. And more and more, we're pushing to encourage states to take action on this issue as well. How did the Lampedusa shipwrecks inform the development of the project? So I think the Lampedusa shipwrecks did shape this project at the outset, but it has grown a lot. So when I joined eight years ago, this was a project that relied very heavily on media monitoring to collect data, to basically find incidents involving a migrant death, record them. And it was very Eurocentric. So it was on paper a global project, but de facto our data was extremely biased towards Europe and routes to Europe. Now, about half of our data comes from key informants. So this is ranging from, you know, local government authorities, the Coast Guard who might be conducting search and rescue, police who might be responding to a body being found on the U.S.-Mexico border. Similarly, U.N. organizations like IOM, other big NGOs like ICRC, but also quite a lot of local organizations, especially in hard-to-reach areas like the Sahara Desert, where eyewitness reports are often really the only source of data on this topic. And what's that process of sourcing the data look like in a practical sense? Who's involved and how's the information being transmitted back and forth? So our team um, is just 10 people to cover the whole world. There's four of us here in Berlin, and then there's six colleagues who are out in our regional offices coordinating more at the country level. So this does depend a lot on the region, on the route, on the availability of information. But generally, it's going to be an initial chat with someone who we think might have data, who we know is working with migrants or working specifically on this topic. We basically talk to them and say, hey, what data do you have on this topic? If you don't collect data, but you are aware of cases, how can we help you to make sure this is documented in some way and is sent to us? They then will start submitting us Data. That can be anything from a sort of proper field collection data tool to, you know, here's an Excel spreadsheet. Can you fill in these 20 fields to, you know, send us an email? We have WhatsApp groups, we have signal groups. So it does really vary from actor to actor simply because the types of actors that we're in contact with are so varied. What ideally is the information you're getting about every incident? So the data that we record and there's about 25 different variables, is basically looking at what happened. So where, when, 
and how someone died, who it happened to. So the number of people who died, the number of people who went missing, the number of survivors and their profiles. So age, gender, country of origin. And then we have information on the information source because our data is coming from quite a few sources. We have a number of different ways to basically say, you know, here was the original source. Sometimes we have to anonymize that because of political sensitivities. And here's our kind of evaluation of how good that information source was. Right. There's this column in the data set called source quality. How do you determine the quality of a source? So that source quality variable is just a set scale from one to five. Five is really the best case scenario. It's a coroner, a medical examiner, some official government body who's in contact with human remains, has determined an official cause of death, ideally has made some effort to identify that person, and then reports to us. A four is an NGO, an IGO who has a direct knowledge of an event and is often in touch with survivors. Two, I'll come back to three. A two is eyewitness reports. So these are cases, especially in really remote areas, deserts, sea crossings, where people just witness people die and there's no way to go out into the middle of a desert and investigate every single case that's reported to us. So we do consider that really valuable and valid information, but because it's kind of inherently unverifiable. It only gets a two. And then one and three are media sources. So this was kind of the origin of the Missing Migrants Project. We really, really try not to have just one media source informing a data point. It does happen. That's a one. If we can get multiple sources that do have different information about a given incident, that gets then a three. Before the Missing Migrants Project, how was the UN or other organizations keeping track of people who died or went missing during migration? So prior to the Missing Migrants Project, there was no other UN organization working on data on this issue. It remains still the only global open access database on missing migrants. There were and still are an amazing number of really fantastic non-governmental organizations that keep track of deaths on specific migration routes. For example, there's like a Cuban NGO that keeps track of Cubans who go missing en route to Florida. These organizations are doing invaluable work that does directly inform our data. And we always, of course, give credit where credit is due. I think the added value of the Missing Migrants Project is one that we bring that data together in one place. And two, we have a huge number of key informants often who are privileged to information that's not available publicly. And that, especially in hard to access areas where this topic of migration is extremely politicized, that is invaluable in bearing witness to these deaths. What would an example be of information that an informant would have that would not already be public? So a really good example of this is the Yemen-Saudi Arabia border. You may have seen Human Rights Watch put a report out a couple of months ago documenting a really horrifying pattern of violence and abuse against primarily Ethiopian migrants who try to cross that border because UN and other actors have a field presence providing assistance to a number of populations on the ground at that border. We were getting information up to about a year and a half ago, documenting specific cases of 
deaths and disappearances that occurred on this border that informed this Human Rights Watch report and are also included in our database. When you get a report, what's the process for vetting that information? Our process usually is just find find as many sources of information as we can. Very often, the first kind of notification that we get is through our media monitoring. We have a lot of really cool artificial intelligence-based tools that does this. We don't like to rely on the media in the best case scenario. So once we receive an alert that an incident may have happened, we are reaching out to any and every key informant in that area who might know more. I imagine in some cases you might know that there was a shipwreck, say, but not how many people were on the ship. How do you deal with cases where you have some information, but maybe not precise information? So these cases are unfortunately really common on sea routes. I mean, we even have cases of boats, we call them invisible shipwrecks, where someone is reported missing and we just never know what happened. We already know that our data is really incomplete, so we do use a pretty conservative approach in our methodology. We always use the lowest estimate. When a shipwreck is reported, often we have a key informant who is directly in contact with the survivors. Those survivors are interviewed if they're willing to ask them how many people are on board and in the best case scenario, who was on board that's still missing. We usually end up with a range. So for example, the shipwreck off the coast of Greece that happened earlier this year, the number of people on board was ranging from 700 to 750. There were about 80 survivors and about 20 remains recovered. That led us to believe that there were roughly 600 people still missing at sea. You mentioned that you believe you're missing a lot of cases, a lot of incidents, or that the catalog is incomplete. What leads you to that belief and how complete do you think it is? Having worked on this project for a number of years now, there's quite a lot of evidence that says we're not capturing the full scope of this issue. First is that every single year, sometimes it feels like every day, we find new key informants who tell us about a route where there's a ton of migrant deaths and we're going, we had nothing recorded there before. Mm. And that is always shocking and honestly a little bit discouraging. More concretely, there is a lot of evidence from our own data that what we capture is not the full truth. You know, we've recorded, I think, close to a thousand bodies washing up on Mediterranean shores where we don't have any record of a shipwreck occurring at any point nearby in the same time period. We're conducting some surveys with eyewitnesses in the Sahara, so people who crossed or who are coming back from the Sahara crossing who have witnessed a death, terrible as it is. These sample sizes are tiny, tiny, tiny compared to the overall flows of people crossing the Sahara. We are nonetheless getting a response rate of about one in five people witnessed a death. So we know there, and I think probably in many other circumstances that there's a ton of deaths that happen that are never reported or recorded. Are there things you're learning from the data, even though it is incomplete, that would have been impossible or much harder to learn otherwise? Absolutely. I think you know the, the data does inform us very obviously about the risks that people take when they're desperate, when they're trying to leave their home. But beyond that, because data on irregular flows is so, so, so scarce. Our data also often inform us of what's happening, who's leaving. A good example of this is in the Sahara Desert. This year, we're seeing more deaths than we've recorded, I think, in almost any prior year. 
and quite a lot of those deaths are of Nigerian migrants. So we think that means that more people from Niger are leaving in the wake of the political unrest there. And I imagine other branches of the UN are using your data. What have you seen them using it for? Our data gets used in a huge variety of ways. I think we have like something like 30,000 citations across academic and media sources. There are something like 20 to 30 UN reports that cited every year. A good example of this is the UN Secretary General's latest report on the Global Compact for Migration. Um, he really highlighted this as an issue, saying, you know, all of these states have agreed, you know, to save lives, to make sure that there's safe, orderly, regular migration. And yet, since the adoption of the Global Compact in 2018, something like 30,000 people have died. How has the process of building out the database changed over the years. You know, it's been around, you said, for basically a decade now. What's changed? A lot has changed. When I started quite some time ago, this quote-unquote database was a Google Drive spreadsheet. <laughs> so it had its rough beginnings for sure. Now we have an internal data set and an external one hosted on MySQL. So just the data frameworks and and data protection has gotten quite a lot better just from a technical side. It's also been really fantastic to have the support of our IT teams who have made data uploading a whole lot easier. It used to be like a really manual entry process, which I know is like kind of boring and technical, but saves us a huge amount of time. You mentioned briefly that there's some component of your news alerting system that uses artificial intelligence. Could you explain that? Yeah. So we have quite a few tools. We, we started out using literally Google News Alerts. So just like a few keywords. We then moved to a, another tool that allowed for more complex Boolean queries in four languages, I think, English, Spanish, French, and Arabic. Now we are partnered with a private sector company called Dataminer that very kindly provides us pro bono access to their modeling system. So they've created a, a custom built model, basically returns us much, much more relevant results to our searches and also allows us to kind of follow a specific incident as it emerges, which is super helpful. It does also use natural language processing in, I think, like a hundred something languages and automatically translates those to, to English, which is really fantastic. I mean, my team is very international, very multilingual. I think we speak 20-something languages across 10 people. But obviously, you know, if a machine can read 150 languages and give us really relevant results, that's even better. Has focusing on this topic through the lens of data made you more or less optimistic about the status of migration safety today? I'm not sure how to answer that question, to be honest. I'm not sure if I if I feel truly optimistic about this because I have been working on this for quite a long time and you know there's more deaths in the Mediterranean this year than the last 8 years we're on track to have the highest number of deaths in the Americas in the Sahara so on the one hand it feels important to be working on documenting this issue and one of my colleagues has a nice way of putting it which is we're visualizing the invisible in a lot of ways at the same time, when the issues that we document are continuing and in many cases getting worse, it can feel really, truly disheartening. A big thanks to Julia for this interview. Our conversation, like all others on the podcast, has been edited to fit into 15 minutes. 
Additional thanks to Nikhil Sanad, who composed the podcast theme music, and to you for listening. To subscribe to the Data Is Plural newsletter, visit data-is-plural.com. <laughs>